So we've been uh, here for one day. Does it feel like an eternity? Quite possibly. The longest 12 hours you've ever spent. I thought I'd begin my talk tonight just by sharing a little bit about my own story of how I got interested in mindfulness meditation. And the teachers were sharing a little bit of their own their stories to each other, and it just kind of inspired me. But um, in the late 80s, I was traveling around in Southeast Asia and then in India. And I was just really, I was definitely interested. I was a real seeker, and I was curious about things. But I was also, you know, very suspicious. What is this meditation thing, these gurus? I don't get it. And I ended up in um, Dharamsala, India, which is in the north of India, where the Dalai Lama has his government in exile. And I got involved with a political organization for working for Tibetan refugees. And I was very, very political and very skeptical. And, but of course, there was tons and tons of meditation teachings that were going on there. And I finally w- thought, well, maybe I'll... I'll I'll go check this out. And I remember very specifically that I used to sit in the back of these halls where they were giving teachings and I would take candy bars and I would open them up, rustling them very loudly and just sort of, yeah, what, what do you got there? Um, but then something, something clicked and I made, I just decided, oh, I think I want to try one of these meditation retreats. So I went on a 10-day meditation retreat. That was not similar to this. It was in a style, a Tibetan Buddhist style. And it was, again, it was, it was interesting. I was still very skeptical. And the, the, the quality of skepticism I really want to encourage, because it would be unfortunate if we said things to you and you said, oh, they're right. Exactly. Everything they say, I'm going to write that down because they're absolutely right. What I really hope is that the, the, you can bring a kind of curiosity and investigation to see whatever you learn here, whether it actually makes sense for you, whether it maps true on your own experience or not. And I learned that really from my own experience. Like I wasn't going to believe anything until I saw that it made sense for me, that what people were promising, what the vision was, none of it was as compelling as, let me try this and see. And then I did, and then, oh, wait a minute, this kind of makes sense. But at that point, I hadn't really decided anything had made sense. Before I had traveled to India, I was living, um, I was in college, and I was very driven, very type A personality. Wanted to succeed, wanted to you know, do really well was always seeking out, you know, getting the best grade and getting attention. And I remember that I was in this retreat, and I was about four or five days into it, and I remember hearing the teacher who was talking about something which she called the four worldly winds, or the um, sometimes four facts about reality, four truths about the world. And the, the winds are that wherever there is gain, there will be loss. And wherever there is um, pleasure, there will be pain. Where there is praise, there is blame. And where there is fame, there is disrepute. And that what happens in the world is most of us go madly seeking the, the positive end of the spectrum, searching, searching for that, and then horrified when we get the other one, when, pa- when pleasure turns to pain, when gain turns to loss. And I heard that, and something clicked inside my mind, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I've been doing. I've been seeking praise. I've been going out there trying to please people, trying to get people to love me, trying to get my teachers, my friends, my whoever it was. And it was like, it was like I could see my, my, my life before my eyes. And then there was this pause, because she said, but you know there is hope the woman who was teaching, there is hope. And I was like, oh, what do you think that is? She said, even though the world will be this way all the time with its ups and downs, there is the possibility of having a mind that can be free, even in the midst of these ups and downs. That we can find a place of peace and well-being, whether there is praise or gain or blame or or 
anything, that we can find a mind of peace. And this was an extraordinary revelation for me, and I knew that this, this was something I wanted to pursue. And I was so lucky, because at that time, you know, it was the 80s, we didn't have $3,000 rents for a one-bedroom, and you know, I could keep practicing and traveling, and, um, and I ended up doing a mindfulness retreat soon after. And that was in Thailand, living in a monastery there in the, with the scorpions and the snakes and the spiders, and that was pleasant. So by the way, if you think a wasp is bad, <laughs> that's nothing compared to practicing in the monasteries of Asia. I'll say a little bit more about that coming up. But, but um, so my point is, well, actually the point was simply just to share with you a little bit about what got me going. And after that, there was a commitment to this practice. And I spent years living in monasteries and retreat centers in the U.S. and abroad. And it's been an incredible journey. And at a certain point, it became clear to me that although I had learned things within the Buddhist world, these teachings were so valuable to people no matter what their background. And so that started the work that I've been doing at UCLA. So mindfulness has been researched and studied quite a bit. There's probably about 3,000 research studies out there looking at mindfulness, which is, sounds great, because it start, they started the first research studies in the 70s, and there were only a few, and then in the last 10 years, there's been this explosion of research around mindfulness. Um, but it's still very, very small. So, so even though 3,000 studies sounds great, um, if I were to say to you, and some of you know the answer to this, so don't reveal it if you do, how many studies do you think there are out there telling you that exercise is good for heart disease? Come on. Too high. But you're on the right track. There's about 60,000 60, studies. So although mindfulness is getting all this incredible hype and it's wonderful and it's, doing, it's having all these positive outcomes that the research is showing, it's still a very young field. And to keep that in mind when you look at the research, because, because you know, uh, the news sites will say, wow, mindfulness, it's great for sleep. It's great for uh, depression. And it is, it is helpful. And there are, it's obviously you're all here because you know that there's a benefit to it. But just to, keep, to take the research a little bit with a grain of salt until it continues to expand and grow and develop until one day there will be 60,000 studies showing the efficacy of mindfulness. Now, um, there's a study that I'm, that I'm going to use to just help me frame my talk t today. And that's a study that was done not looking at the efficacy of mindfulness, but looking at what they call the mechanisms of mindfulness. And this was done by a researcher named Shauna Shapiro, who's done a lot of great research over the years. And it was looking at why mindfulness works, essentially. Not just, not just what it does, okay, it helps with anxiety, but why does it work? And so what they came up with something that they called the IAA, the mechanisms um, the under how mindfulness affects positive change. And the IAA stands for intention, attention, and attitude. And these are interwoven processes, and I'm going to kind of go through them just to help me frame how I want to talk about mindfulness with you. So let's start look at the piece of attitude, of what, what attitude is inherent in mindfulness. When I define mindfulness, I like to use the definition paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness and curiosity and a willingness to be with what is. So embedded in that definition, some of, some of you know John Kabat-Zinn's definition, which uses the phrase um, paying attention non-judgmentally. Uh, there's this embedded and is this quality of really of kindness. And I think when you heard Nikki giving instruction this morning, there was a lot of be gentle, be kind to yourself. Because probably, because so many of us struggle with being hard on ourselves. You know, there's just this tremendous epidemic of self-judgment, self-criticism, self-hatred. And so mindfulness has right within the very definition of it, this quality, this attitude of kindness that when enacted, as you practice, cultivates more kindness. So if you're paying attention to your breathing 
and your attention wanders. And as your attention wanders, you say, get back to the breath. Has anyone done that today? <laughs> that is not a kind attitude. That's a more like, you know, police officer mentality, right? Apologize if there's any law enforcement people here. So, um, so how we come back to the breath is very significant. Do we come back to the breath or come back to listening with a quality of harshness or a quality of kindness? And this willingness to be with what is. Are we in reaction to our experience? Okay, I'm mindful. I can be mindful of this knee pain. I really can. Versus, oh, knee pain is here. Can I be present with the knee pain? It, so this, this is a very significant piece of how mindfulness, um, how mindfulness, in order for it to be, to really truly be mindfulness and not just plain old paying attention, it involves this quality of being willing to be with what is, not in resistance or reaction, and also an approach kind of of kindness. And like I said, we struggle. Many of us are really, really perfectionists. I was a perfectionist. In some ways, that's what led me to the practice. If I could meditate well enough, maybe I would become some incredible being who everyone would bow down to or something absurd like that. So here's a, here's, um, here's a little poem. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, cheerful ignoring aches and pains, <coughs> If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can face the world without lies and deceit and conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor and sleep without the aids of dr aid of drugs, then you're probably a dog. <laughs> I know most of you know that one, but I love it. I have to read it. <laughs> we put such high standards on ourselves. We really do. And mindfulness reminds us to bring this aspect, this attitude of kindness to everything that we do. And we'll be deliberately cultivating kindness. So in, uh, later on this evening, we'll be learning practices that help us cultivate the quality of kindness. And that goes hand in hand with the mindfulness practice. So that's attitude, this, this attitude that we bring. And that's one aspect of this mechanism of mindfulness. And then another piece is attention. What are we doing? We're training in attention. People were reflecting today that when they paid attention, the world opened up to them in a new way. They saw things more clearly, more vividly. They felt that they were more present in their life, that more gratitude arose. And this happens as we practice, as we train our attention. Now, it's hard to pay attention. It's hard to pay attention. I mean, first of all, we live in distraction world. You know, just I think that um, they say now the children on average spend seven hours a day on screens. That's after school, right? Even so, some kids even do screens at school, right? So seven hours a day, and we're you know most adults are not much better. I mean, we have our little mini screens that we pull up every five minutes. Um, oh, I think they say. 300 people lift their phone up on average 300 times a day. Anyway, there's distraction. There's endless distraction. And so um, it's hard. And so, so we have a culture. And then we have a mind that has been, if we think about the history, human history and biology, and um, we, are, we, have a, we have a mind that we're biologically wired to d detect and react quickly to threat. So if you think about our ancestors saying, okay, saber-toothed tiger, better run. So we have this mind, that, this brain, that's, that is responding and reacting to threat all the time. And it's good because we're still around. It's a very good thing. So it was a highly adaptive survival skill, but nowadays, in many ways, it's highly maladaptive. 
it floods our system with adrenaline and cortisol, increases our heart rate, raises our blood pressure, and gradually can make us ill. Could. Um, so we have this we have this biology and this brain that's geared towards paying attention to threats and being distracted. And what's interesting about it is that we can take a brain that's doing one thing and actually teach it to do something different. And that's the beauty of the science of neuroplasticity that teaches us that we can train our brains. They used to think that brains stopped growing and changing after about 25. And now they know that's not true. And so a lot of the research shows when you look at the brains of, for instance, a very famous study looking at the brains of um, taxi drivers in London. So in London, very complex city to navigate. But these taxi drivers, when they looked at their brains, they saw the part of the brain that was responsible for memory formation was stronger, was thicker, sorry, not stronger, thicker than people of the same age range because they had practiced it. So even if you think of yourself as someone who's not so great at paying attention, if you keep doing it over time, you keep coming back, teaching your mind to come back to the present moment, there will be a change. And if it's really hard for you, let's say you identify someone who has ADD or ADHD, that's great. You have more to work with. Your brain will get even stronger because you'll keep, your mind will keep getting scattered and you'll keep coming back and you'll keep training it. And so the brain, when they've looked at the brains of advanced meditators, these are the people who've been meditating for you know, 30, 40 years in caves, they've seen that certain parts of the brain are thicker than um, people of the same age range. So you probably know that as you age, your brain thins out. Do you know that? If you don't, now you have something else to worry about. It's called age-related cortical decline. Our brain thins out as we age, but in the advanced meditators, it doesn't happen. In advanced, or, or in certain areas, one area is the prefrontal cortex, what we think of as executive functioning, the CEO of our brain. It's responsible for flexible thinking, delayed gratification, working memory, uh, impulse control, emotional regulation. In long-term meditators, we don't see the same decline. It's very, it's very interesting. Of course, many more studies to do in this field, as I've been pointing to. So what are we doing here? We're applying attention. We're diligently applying attention, bringing our attention back again and again to the present moment. When we start out here, we start out with our breathing. And uh, so remember, I, I was saying today, for some people, the breath is not their main focus. For some people, sounds work really well. You can also use your body. As, an, as a main focus or an anchor. But we start with something that's neutral, that allows our mind that when you come back to it again and again, it begins to let your mind settle a little bit. And this allows for more clarity, more calm, more focus to arise. So if you have one of the games that they do with little kids when they're teaching mindfulness to kids is they'll take a, a glitter ball, one of those plastic balls that's filled with glitter and you shake it up, and then you put it down, and then you ask the kids to kind of breathe and watch the glitter go down to the bottom of the ball. And this is an analogy for our minds. Our minds, like as you know, today, probably you have seen that your mind is completely wild. Aren't you glad you do not have a loudspeaker coming out of your head, <laughs> right? If everybody behind you knew what you were saying, or in front of you on all sides. What was happening, knew what, you were, what was happening in our mind? Our minds are wild. But with this sustained application of effort, we can have a calm and focus that begins to happen. And you will notice a difference between today and a few days from now. And you'll say, whoa, before it was really hard for me to stay focused, but I'm suddenly able to do it. And this building of the focus actually begins to expand over the next few days. So it's not just paying attention to our breath. We're going to start including other aspects of our experience. So we'll go from just our breathing and sound, and then we'll begin to incorporate body sensations and show you how you can work with physical pain using mindfulness. And then um, bring in the emotions which are part of our experience, of course, and then thoughts. How do we work with thoughts and moods? And, 
And then we can even expand more fully to explore, and we probably will the last few days, being aware of awareness itself. There is something that is aware. What is that? And we can turn our concentrated attention to that experience. And there's a lot to see. But for now, we're just starting with, you know, day one. Day one is just reining in this busy mind. Our mindfulness can be very, very focused, kind of like a telescopic, telescopic lens on a camera. Sometimes we're noticing the minutia of our feet and the movement of just that one toe. Sometimes our lens is wide open. Walking meditation is great because in walking meditation we can get really telescopic and then sometimes we get wide open panoramic like on a camera. So there's this amazing sense of being able to take everything in because ultimately mindfulness really is not about how many breaths you can be aware of. It is a training and attention, but as we'll see in a moment, so it's, there's, there's an attitude that we bring with it, I just talked about, then an att- a training of attention, and then there's the intention piece, and that takes it out of just training or attention. But it's not, we're not practicing merely in order to be able to notice our breathing. It's a good, good thing to be able to do, but we're practicing in order to do exactly what I wanted to learn when I was sitting in that monastery 30 years ago, which was sit there, which was learn how to have a capacity to be present with all that life brings. And this is what you're doing. This is paying attention to just this breath or just this step or this wandering mind, bringing it back. This is teaching us and giving us a greater and greater capacity to be present for whatever, whatever we meet in life. So you have to start somewhere. You know, we're not taught this. I mean, little kids now, now there's all this mindfulness being brought into schools, but for most of us sitting in this room, mindfulness was not taught in schools. And so we have to learn it as adults. And we have to learn it in a way that um, goes against 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, et cetera, years of conditioning to do the opposite. But then, as we get it, and we start to relax, and we go, oh, I can be present with what is, in a kind way. How amazing. Everything you do in your meditation practice will transfer out to your life. This is something I've always loved so profoundly about this meditation practice. So for instance, if you tend to not be a very kind, kind to yourself, a lot of us are very self-judgmental, But in meditation, you find that you're being kinder and kinder. You will likely see that that kindness begins to manifest itself out in your daily life. Because it's it's just this. This is what, you know, as John Cabot's book is called, wherever you go, there you are. Right? This is it. We're training this mind, this body, this heart, this heart for um, how we can be and live in the world. Okay, so there's intention, uh, sorry, there's attitude, attention, and then this next piece, which is intention. Intention is obviously what, what is our intention for being here, but it's more than that. It's re- it, w- one of the things that's very interesting is that people come to this practice for all sorts of reasons. And I've heard, believe me, I've heard everything under the sun. One of my friends, uh, who is a serious meditator, she used to pay her brother a day's wages to go to a meditation day. That was a, he did, had no interest in going whatsoever, but he went for the money. I mean, people go for all sorts of reasons. Now, most of us are here probably because we're stressed out, we're anxious, we're, you know, there's, all, there's, there's a lot of that. Some of us are here because we love this practice, and it's been so illuminating and insightful. The typical thing that brings most people in the door, and certainly as I've been teaching for years at UCLA, is the need for more self-regulation. And this is where, as we learn to train our minds, it can result in having less stress, basically, much less stress. I can calm myself down in the midst of the difficulties because I know how to train this mind. 
There was a, there was a, a few years ago, well, actually it had to have been longer, my daughter was about two years old and she's almost eight, so it was a while back. I'll never forget it though, I was going to, I was at a, some store, and I was waiting in line at the store and um, they were, it was just, everything was going wrong. The other line went way faster and I was getting mad, I'm in the wrong line, and then the clerk was going really slowly and then I was pissed off and I had a little two-year-old with me and it was just, it was really bad. I was really angry. <laughs> Oops. And so I got, um, I got back into the car and I put my daughter in the car seat and I'm sitting there, I'm just fuming and I'm like, <gasps> And then I just start to kind of narrate my experience. I'm really angry. I'm so angry. That was so frustrating for me. My little two-year-old goes, breathe, mommy. <laughs> they get you every time, right? They know exactly what to say. But this is what I was trying to teach her. And by the way, she, she for those of you who meditate and you can't wait for your children to get interested in it, I will say that my daughter loves to make fun of mindfulness. <laughs> my colleague Marvin Belzer, who I teach with quite a bit, says she's going to be the anti-mindfulness prophet when she's older, <laughs> making fun of it. When, I was, when she was little, I used to try to get her to do loving-kindness practice, and, which you're going to do in a few hours. Some of most of you are familiar with it. And she would, I would say, okay, let's send loving-kindness to Grandpa or, or to Daddy. And, she'd say, and we'd say, may you be happy, Grandma. May you be happy, Grandpa. And then she'd start going, may you be happy, Poop. <laughs> that was it. And then she, then she likes to imitate me. She's like, she's like, bring your attention to your breath. <laughs> so, no illusions. <laughs> no illusions here. But, of course, children, they're your best mindfulness bell. Right? They take you back to yourself. And they're so in the present moment. You know, I, I, I just... I love, I love when, I, when I'm caught in my stuff and I see my daughter and I just kind of join her in her sense of presence. You know, the little ones, they're just, they're right there. And that's why I said yesterday, I said that mindfulness is this innate human quality, this innate human capacity, this ability to be present. We were all like that. Surprise. You already have been mindful hundreds and thousands of times, especially when you were little. But then what happened? You got older and you got educated and you had your problems and you, know, you went through life and then, oh God, I have to go on a meditation retreat to teach me to do something I already know. Because you probably will have moments here where you'll say, oh, this was like when I was little or when I'd be at the beach and I would just rest and relax. Because mindfulness, it's inherent in all of us. We all have this ability. So, many people come in the door with the intention being self-regulation. What the research shows that's very interesting is if you have a goal when you walk in, you're going to get that as an outcome. So if you come in hoping to be self-regulated, that is probably what you're going to get. But there are other goals than just self-regulation. So it's important for people to begin to see that self-regulation isn't the only game in town. And that there's much more. So, so just to add to self-regulation, though, is there's emotional regulation. Emotional regulation is so powerful with mindfulness. And we'll be talking about this over the course of this retreat and talking about how to work with emotions. And many of you are already familiar with RAIN, the practice of RAIN, which we'll probably use again about recognize and allow and investigate and not identify with our emotions. I was driving down the freeway. You know, I've, I've been saying that LA has to patent um, freeway driving meditation because it's, it's so stressful and you have to learn how to navigate it in a non-stressful way. And I was driving and I was trying to get to this, this um, class I was teaching in downtown and I was going from UCLA. So those of you in LA know what that means. It means an hour in the car, easy, if I'm lucky. For those of you who don't know, just assume tons of traffic all the time. And so I'm driving, I'm driving, trying to get there. And I had dressed kind of nicely because it was kind of like a fancy event. And I was, you know, I'm just, wa and my, my ways told me that I was going to get there on time. But then, of course, there's an accident or something. And I'm just in the car, stuck in the traffic. And I could just feel my body. Okay, 
all of this energy coming through me and oh no I'm late and anxious and this is an important event and I'm having to teach there and I'm going to be late and how embarrassing and all of this and then thank goodness I had all this time in the car to meditate so I just and you know I teach this stuff I should practice it right so I just began to practice with the emotions noticing oh this is rising in my body feeling it breathing taking a pause Okay, here comes anxiety. Anxiety is moving through me. Feeling the anxiety moving through me. We're going to talk about this over the course of these days. How, in the midst of strong emotion, can we stay present? And the key, of course, is paying attention to what's happening in your body and feeling it and not getting lost in the stories we tell ourselves about the experience. So there I was, regulating my emotions, hoping I would get there in time. I got there, it was, I called them and I said, I'm gonna be late. And they said, don't worry, we're just getting in the room now. So that was a bit of a relief. I drive in, I pull up, there was a parking space right in front, it was like the parking gods, miracle. And I get out and I kind of brush myself off and I walk out and just as I'm walking down the street, a sprinkler system goes off. (laughs) And I get drenched. And I thought, Okay, <laughs> really good thing I meditate now. But, you know, it, it's just life, right? Life is like this. Life is full of praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure. And, right? This is what it is. We, it, life is like a roller coaster. It's a roller, I just went on a roller coaster with my daughter. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. I, raise your hand if you like roller coasters. All right, certain people love roller Raise your hand if you hate roller coasters. It's one or the other. Nobody's kind of middle of the road about roller coasters. I went on the roller coaster with her, and she was, she was, her face was turning red, and, she was, and I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling the same emotions that she is, but I'm the grown-up. So I'm having to regulate her and me, and I kept saying, you're completely safe. You're completely safe. It's totally fine, because it would do these swings. You know, and you would feel like you're about to fall off the side of the roller coaster. I survived, thanks to mindfulness and thanks to faking it. <laughs> you're completely safe. I know you're going to be completely safe. I didn't feel that. I felt like I was not completely safe. But it's my, in some ways, it's a, it's a bit of a metaphor. It's like that we can, for, especially for children, we can hold a space of regulation for them just as we learn to hold a space of regulation for us. That's what mindfulness does. Mindfulness is like teaching us to be our own best friend. That when we're in the midst of fear or grief or anger, we can hold a loving space for these things to arise. And when my daughter is crying, I can be with her and say, okay, you're really having a hard time. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Not try to fix it, not try to change it, but just hold the space for her. And that's what we're doing with ourselves. So self-regulation can be an intention. Emotional regulation can be an intention. And this, another area that's talked about in this study is the area of what we call self-exploration. We can go into mindfulness so we feel better, or we can go into mindfulness to learn about the depths of ourselves. And I think that's what happened for me quite significantly when I was practicing, was when I first started meditating, it was just to relieve some of the suffering. But when I began to practice more, and I saw that it was this doorway into extraordinary self-understanding and self-exploration. So one of the things the article talks about, the study, study talks about, is this quality of what they call decentering or re-perceiving. And that's scientific jargon. And what it really just <laughs> simply means is, is, well, it means a lot of things. But basically, we think we're the center of the universe. I mean, that's normal. We think we're the center of the universe. We are the center, in some ways, of our universe. But we're always lost in this sense of me, my, all the self, all the time. It's a kind of self-centeredness that is, um, is normal and is also can lead to a lot of suffering. So um, 
I was thinking about kids and the center of the universe. I'm sorry, I know not everybody has kids and I'm using a lot of kid metaphors today, but I'm, they're just in me at the moment. Uh, my friend asked, um, wanted her son to practice generosity. And so he said, I want to give money away to be generous. And she said, okay, and he's like four. And so he gave money to someone and he said, and they said, that was so generous of you that you donated that money. And he said, well, that was because I want them to buy me something. <laughs> So this is why, right? This is we're the center of our universe, and um, we're like that. So one of the revolutionary aspects of mindfulness is this learning that we don't have to believe everything we think. That we don't have to take so personally every emotion, every thought. We can use mindfulness to notice and to become aware and create this quality, this re-perceiving, this deep seeing that comes without clinging to the sense of me and my and I and that it's all about me. It's a kind of not, it's, it's, well, let's talk about it in a practical way. So sometimes you're meditating and if you think about cartoons with thought balloons coming out of a person's person's head, right? It's like we have this thought, but with mindfulness, we can take the pin of mindfulness and pop the thought, and the thought can dissolve. Have you had that experience since you've been meditating, where suddenly you ha- you're thinking something, and then you're suddenly aware you're thinking it and, it, and it just fades away or disappears? It's so interesting when that happens, right? I often talk about, and those of you who've been with me at UCLA, we talk a lot about not getting on the train. The train is this stream of thoughts that we're constantly lost in. We're on, we're on a train. We're on the train and the train goes. So you're sitting here and you're thinking and you're sitting here meditating. Wow, I'm doing an okay job meditating. I think I was with one breath. But the person in front of me, I know they're a much better meditator than me. Everybody in the room is a much better meditator than me. I'm probably the worst meditator. I remember when I was in high school, I think I was the worst one in my math class. You know, and your mind just goes and goes and goes. I sort of think of it like a snowball, where you have a little bit of snow and it just picks up steam and it goes and goes and goes. And the next thing you know, you have a giant snowball. So this is like we get on a train and it's about, we can get down the train and it's 20 minutes down the track. And we might realize at that point, oh, I have a choice. I can get off the train. I don't have to be so caught in these thoughts. It's, it's, it's astounding when you realize that the thoughts are like trains. They're just coming and going. Because the other option is that you can stay on the platform and let the train go, not get on the train in the first place. We have the experience through mindfulness practice of noticing a thought arising and passing. And this is quite amazing when this happens. So we learn this practice, and we'll talk more about it, of what we call non-identification, non-identification, of seeing thoughts and emotions as just as they are. There are energies moving through us, coming and going, and how liberating when we can have relief from them. Ultimately, over time, this begins to lead to more and more of a quality we call equanimity. And equanimity is an evenness and balance of mind, an even-mindedness in the face of the roller coasters of life, in the face of the praise and the blame. Because as you sit here and there's a difficult emotion that moves through you, or an unpleasant body sensation, or there's... Um, a memory that reminds you of something that you're sad about, and yet you sit with it in this open embrace, with this curiosity, this attentiveness, this willingness to be with what is. You are cultivating the very thing that we need most in this world. This ability to have equanimity. Okay, sorry, I'm not sure we need this most in the world, but it's one of the things we need significantly in the world, more and more, non-reactivity, ability to be present with things as they are. So one of my favorite stories, which I'm really um, 
I have to tell because of all the wasps and bugs here. So remember I said it was, it's nothing compared to being in Asia and practicing. I remember there was this one time I was practicing. I, I, so I spent a lot of time over there, I told you. And I was living in a monastery and it was the rainy season and there were bugs. It was just, you would not believe how many bugs there were. There was this one night, I remember I was walking home um, from the meditation hall to the little hut I was living in and there was this giant light, which I think it must have been newly installed, and it was casting this huge light, maybe, you know, quarter of the room size. And I'm slowly walking up to it, and I get to it, and I look down, and there are just like hundreds of thousands of bugs, like different shapes and sizes and kinds and flying and sp I mean, it was, it was like your biggest nightmare if you don't like bugs. And they were all under this thing, and I was just thinking, okay, take a breath, Diana. What are you going to do? And I had to get through. So I don't know if you ever heard that kid rhyme, you can't go over it. <laughs> you can't go under it. <laughs> do you know that? Going on a lion hunt. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. Which is, of course, a metaphor for life, right? With suffering. Sometimes you, you want to get around it. You want to get under it. You want to get over it. But you can't. The only thing you can do is go through it. So I remember in my most mindful voice, because there were a few other people standing there, and you're not supposed to talk, but I did. Um, <laughs> we were all standing there horrified that we had to get down this path with this bug. And I remember saying, okay, one, two, three. Run! <laughs> All of us darted through the bugs. We made it safe. Um, but that wasn't the story I wanted to tell. That was another story that arose. The story that I wanted to tell is one I've told for years. But so, so there were lots of bugs, and there were snakes, and spiders, and scorpions. So I was living for a year in the monastery in, um, in Myanmar, um, which we called Burma. And, um, but the thing that was so bad at one point were mosquitoes. You know, mosquitoes were terrible. You couldn't go out at certain times of day. And, and so I remember, um, I remember that I was like, all right, what am I going to do? There's so many mosquitoes. I think I'm going to make mosquito traps. So I started designing mosquito traps. And the first one I designed, I was living in this little hut about 12 or 10 by 12, I think. And it was really hot in there. And so I took a big bucket of lake water and I just put it right on the ground and I waited for the mosquitoes to land on it. And then a whole bunch of them wouldn't. I'd put something over the top and rush them out the door. Mm -hmm. Kind of worked. So then I thought, then the construction of the building had holes in the, in the wall for air, I guess, or vent. So I plugged those up, but then I was like meditating in a sauna. It was horrible. This is, seriously, this is nothing. If you just, just, all right, I don't want you to feel like, well, anyway, just, 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 it was bad. And then, um, and then I had this great idea, which was late at night, I would stand by the window and I would open the window, turn on the outdoor light, stand by the window and shout out to the mosquitoes, come and get me. And they'd go flying towards the light, I guess, or towards me. And I would jump out of the way like a Toreador <laughs> and the mosquitoes would move through. So these were all great. They're wonderful things to waste your time with when you're meditating. <laughs> and that's the problem. I was just wasting my time. I wasn't, I mean, I was, I was designing mosquito traps. And it suddenly began to dawn on me that um, I could design all the mosquito traps in the world, but there would always be another mosquito. And that wouldn't it be better to have a mind that could be present with all of the mosquitoes? that could be okay even in the midst of the mosquitoes. And that's what I began to work on. And so I went back to my meditation, creating this mind. This is a mind of equanimity. That's what I'm pointing to, a mind that can be okay no matter what is arising, no matter what on the roller coaster of life. And I used the mantra quite a bit. The mantra was, there's always another mosquito and I would just say that to myself, there's always another mosquito. Anytime things went wrong and I kind of needed to manipulate and fix them, there's always another mosquito. So through self-exploration, we learn this, descent, what we call decentering or non-identification. We cultivate more equanimity. 
we cultivate, we see meditation as a microcosm of life. That what we're, what, what's happening in here is happening out there. And, and we have insights, and insights arise. And this is incredible. As you're practicing, you may have insights. You may have had a very strong insight today, which is that, wow, my mind is all over the place. That's a very powerful insight, actually, because if you went up to someone on, a, on the street corner and said, are you, are you, is your mind really reined in and just thinking a few things? And they'll say, yes, yes, of course. But we know that's not what our mind is like. This is an insight. It's useful. But we might have insights about the nature of, uh, about our histor- historical insights, it's insights about our own psychology, insights about how the practice works, insights about our family, insights about... Um, the way life is interconnected. And this arises through, not by making them happen, not by sitting here. So, so we know that this is sometimes called insight meditation, this practice. But they don't arise because we make them happen. They arise because we create the conditions in which insight can arise. And the conditions, it's like we plow the field, we plow the field, we, we plant the seeds, we water the seeds, we do all the work, we weed, and then at some point there is understanding that arises. And you will see this as you practice. It's so beautiful that, and this is, I think this is what spoke to me so much when I was a young person starting the practice, was how much I learned about myself and the nature of the world. So the last piece that's talked about is that, that we can come in with the idea of regulating ourselves and our emotion. We can move into more of a self-exploration. And then the final area that they talk about that people, uh, people go to mindfulness for, for their intention, is what they call self-transcendence. And what that means in simple terms is just really that we're so much more than what we think we are. You know, through mindfulness, we can have access to our own inherent goodness, our own inherent luminous nature, the qualities that are not, we're not our anxiety, we're not our grief, we're not our disappointment, we're not our self-judgment. We're so much more than that. We are so much more than that. And as we practice, we may have moments where we feel a connection with nature and with all things. We might have moments of deep silence and connectedness. We might have moments of incredible reverence or gratitude or recognition of our shared humanity, of our common humanity. These are qualities and facets of these states and moments of what they're calling self-transcendence, which I just think of as deeper seeing into who we really are. And then as we practice, this arises more and more, and it's just a beautiful process that I can't, again, as I said in the very beginning, Don't trust me? I mean, trust me, but don't trust me. In other words, try it yourself and see what happens. And now that I said this, now you're going to start looking. Okay, when's the insight going to happen? When am I going to regulate myself? But but actually, that quality of being gentle and relaxed and seeing what arises is so important. That quality, sometimes it's called beginner's mind. Not a lot of expectations just being with things as they are, as we open more and more to the vast true nature that's here for all of us. Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Zen master, says, happiness is available. Please help yourself. Please help yourself. So why don't we just sit for a couple of minutes.
And as we sit, I just remind you, just first taking a breath and noticing how you're doing as we, as you finish listening to this talk, noticing what's up inside you. And so think about today your attitude towards yourself as, as you practice your attitude towards the meditation. Have I brought in kindness? And if you haven't been so kind or so willing to be with what is, just notice, it's fine, wherever you are, just to notice. And you can acknowledge the attention that you've been training attention over these, this day, and you will be over the course of the six, seven days. This training of attention And then to reflect on your intention. What brought me here? Self-regulation, self-exploration, self-transcendence, some combination. Just reconnecting with that intention, maybe the one you shared yesterday. Or maybe a new intention. Notice how that feels inside you as you reconnect. And just take this last moment to simply relax and be without effort, being present, right here, right now. This is it. to have dinner. So we'll, so as you know, the schedule is, some of you have been on other retreats where the talk is in the evening, but so it's, this one's a little flipped, but we'll have dinner and then there'll be some sitting and then there'll be a, a loving kindness meditation practice in the evenings for you to make sure to be here for. Okay. Thank you.